You know, one of the, the great adventures in parenting is trying to get an answer from our children as to why they've done something wrong. Why? Why did you put the lizard in the fridge? Why did you mash the Play-Doh all the way down into the carpet? Why'd you do that? And what, what is the answer always? Always. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. And you know what, what's so funny about that is? That's really the truth. They don't know why they do a lot of the things they do. And what's even crazier, if you're a grown-up, we grow up into adulthood, and we still don't really know sometimes why we do some of the things that we do. Why do I make a lot of the destructive choices that I make? I don't really know. But y'all, the, the more that we come to know and walk with Jesus, when we ask ourselves this question, why? Why do I sin? Why do I make destructive choices? Why do I choose lesser affections and loves over the love of God? Why do I do that? Increasingly, as Christians, we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. Because the Word of God and the Spirit of God always are working to get down into the roots of the heart. When we open up God's Word and the Spirit of God leads us into His truth, we start to find that there are always deeper roots and sources behind the things that we do. We can't plead ignorance any longer. And see, here's why this is so important. Y'all, to follow Jesus, Jesus is not looking for compliant behavior. Jesus does not just want buttoned-up religious people who put on a good show externally. No, Jesus desires the heart. He wants your heart. Jesus wants to transform you from the heart. And so as we look into James chapter 4 today, we get a wonderful picture of this. In James chapter 4, James is dealing with an external issue. There's an obvious problem going on in the church but he doesn't deal in externals. He doesn't deal with just behavior outwardly. He cuts down to the heart. And so when, when James talks to us about the issues of the heart that manifest outwardly, that come out and cause problems, uh, this can be and will be, I trust, a painful exercise for us. Anytime the roots of our sin get exposed, it hurts. It's uncomfortable. Um, but there's an assurance here that we also see in the text. It's not just the harshness of sin exposure, but it's the exposure of God's grace. Y'all, we're going to see it as we go through, that no matter how great your sin is today, God's grace is certainly greater. No matter what. No matter how deep the roots of my sin go, and they go deep, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love goes deeper. And so even as we struggle through this scripture today, I pray that we are also affirmed and encouraged in what is greater and truer beyond ourselves, beyond our sin. It's God, and he gets the last word. So let's just walk through this together, beginning in verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1, he addresses some manner of a problem in the church. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Y'all, I think it's helpful for us to know that when when we read a New Testament letter like James, the, the letters of the New Testament were written to specific people going through specific issues. James didn't write this letter, roll it up, stick it into a bottle, and throw it out into the ocean for just anybody to find. He wrote it to a place, a people who were going through uh, particular problems. And so when he writes with a specific concern to the church, we see it in verse 1, something's wrong. He says there are quarrels and conflicts among these believers, these Christians. 
Now, James doesn't bother with the details. Surely they know what the details are as they read the letter. His concern is with the source, with the root. Where are these conflicts coming from? And he answers his own question. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war within your members? In other words, your problems on the outside are coming because you've got problems on the inside. You've got sinful desires in your heart. In this case, the fruit of the tree reveals the root. Bad fruit is coming from a bad root. Y'all, this really goes back from, for, for us to chapter 1. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but back in chapter 1, James talked to us about the issue of temptation, and he said you can't blame temptation on your outward circumstances. Each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own sinful desire. And then lust conceives and it gives birth to sin and sin grows up and it kills us. That was James's concern back in chapter 1. And so in this case, I, it's, it's safe for us at least to assume that in the church that James is writing to, they've got these conflicts. Who's taking the blame? Nobody. They're blaming each other. That's the whole point. That's why they're quarreling. They're fighting. This wouldn't be a problem if you would just change, if you would straighten up. The problem's not with me. The problem's with you. That's what a quarrel is. That's what a conflict involves. But James says, no, the problem is the sinful desire that wages war within you. That wages war within you. Uh, this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter uses the same language. He says that our sinful desires wage war against our souls. And I want you all to stop for just a minute and consider this. That the, the language of the New Testament when it concerns our sin is warfare language. Paul talked about putting on the spiritual armor of God because you've got to defend yourself against the flaming darts of the enemy. You're at war, Paul tells us, and Peter tells us, and now James is telling us the same, that there, there's sin in me that's waging war within against my soul. Um, I, I think that, that, that we sometimes come to the conclusion that sin is just a category in our life that is easily managed that I can, I can manage my sin, I can keep it under wraps, I can take care of the issues that are, 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 are present in my heart. And y'all, I, I, for me, I'm constantly deceiving myself in this area. This is an issue for me that is, that is, that is real, and this scripture honestly brings it to the surface. That I, I'll admit all day long, I've got sin in my heart, sure I've got sin in my life, but I've got it under control. It rears its head from time to time when, you know, I, I, yeah, of course, yeah, but, I, but there's nothing in me that I can't handle. And that's just wrong. It's wrong. The sin in your heart, the sin in my heart, it's waging war against us. And if I think I can manage the sin in my life, then I've got way too high a view of myself. And frankly, I've got too low a view of my sin as if it's not all that bad. The scripture doesn't allow us that category. Sin is waging war within us. If we don't understand that, then we'll have no weapon to fight it. And this is what carries us along. If we, if we understand the depth of our sin and the problem of sin, then James says you're going to understand now why it manifests the way it does. Look at verse 2. He says, you lust, you desire, and you do not have, and so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The two chief sins that James is pointing out here, the sin of coveting and the sin of envy. Covetousness and 
envy, and they're really, they're related sins. To covet something means that you desire something so deeply, so badly, that you create an idol out of it. You make an idol, something that almost is, is a point of worship for you, something you want. And it could be something tangible, like a new car, but it also could be that you want to become a certain kind of person. You want a certain platform. You want to climb the ladder and achieve a certain ambition or that you want people to feel a certain way about you. Anything that, that we can covet and desire, James says, we make an idol out of that. Okay? And envy is a related sin because envy is the sin specifically of desiring what someone else has. So you're not just coveting in general, but you're envying someone who has the thing that you want, that you feel like ought to belong to you. And this is the core issue for him. This is the reason that they're fighting. He says, you covet what you don't have, and so you murder. Now, it's, it's unlikely that there were Christians murdering other Christians in the local church. That's um, probably not what James is talking about. He's probably actually referencing something Jesus said. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about the fact that we can commit murder in the heart. That if you hate your brother, if you speak against your brother, if you hold another Christian in contempt, that that's the same, in a sense, as committing murder spiritually in the heart, even if you don't commit the physical act. And so the, the overflow of this sinful desire is causing me to hurt the people around me, the people that I'm supposed to love. And, of course, if there's envy, then envy produces fights among you because you have what I want. You have what I think I deserve. And now, what is it that these people are coveting and envying so, so deeply? Why, why the problem? Well, James doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us the specifics. But what we know is the outcome, that their desire to have is destroying their relationships. Because that's what coveting and that's what envy do. To desire something or something that you have, that, that cuts off love, it cuts off sacrifice, it cuts off generosity, it makes us entirely self-absorbed and self-centered, and therefore it ruins relationship with others. I can't be self-absorbed and still love you well. And so they're, they're, they're breaking fellowship with those that they're supposed to have the deepest fellowship with. And James says, if that's not bad enough, you're also breaking fellowship with God. You notice what he says at the end of verse 2? You do not have because you do not ask. You have stopped praying. You're not praying to God to petition God for your needs. You're not treating God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. You've excluded God from the conversation entirely. And your prayerlessness is just one more example of your self-absorption. Now, I want to tell you guys this. I, I mentioned this a minute ago about the the, the attempts that we make to manage our sin, to manage our life, we all convince ourselves of this. I can manage my life just fine. Y'all, if that's what we believe, then we will not pray. Or we'll pray only very sparsely. If I believe that I can manage my sin, then I'm not going to ask for God's grace, God's help. I'm not going to confess it because I believe I've got it under control. If I think that I can manage my life and my resources just fine, then I'm not going to pray for God's provision because I don't think I need it. You don't have because you don't ask, James says. You think you've got life under control, when in reality you don't. And then he, now, now, there may be people who say, okay, 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 I'll ask. I'll pray. If it'll get you off my back, I'll pray. But then look at verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Even when we do pray, there are times 
where we're not praying for God to be glorified in my life, that, that God would, would be made much of and, and, and that my life would be a reflection of him. No, I'm praying just for me. I'm praying for what I want. And I'm trying to use God as a, as a genie in a bottle of sorts, that I'm only praying and asking because of what I hope that God will give me and not because I want communion and fellowship with him. Now, James says, if I'm asking with that type of selfish motive, then why would I expect to receive anything from God? Why would God look at that fire, that negative, sinful, selfish fire burning in my heart? Why would God pour fuel, knowingly pour fuel on a fire like that? Why would he give us what we ask for if we're only asking for our own ambitions? Now, up to this point, James has been, I mean, he's, he's direct, but he's been very fatherly, very pastoral, very brotherly. All throughout chapters 1, 2, and 3, James has talked to the church as my brethren, my beloved brethren, very pastoral. Uh, but he, he, this, this, this issue's got him on a tear, all right? I mean, he just, he, he couldn't sleep on it. He is writing uh, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and he just doesn't hold back. Look at what he calls the church, not my brethren in verse 4 anymore. He says, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, Y'all, when James calls his fellow Christians adulteresses, that's harsh. But he's he's trying to kind of hearken us back to the Old Testament. That when the people of Israel, God's chosen people... Every time they left out from under God's protection and authority, whenever they left out and and refused to obey him and instead ran after other gods, other idols, things like that, uh, there was a uh, language given to the people of Israel, and it's pretty consistent throughout the scripture, uh, of adultery. That was the language. It was adulterous behavior. They were treated, uh, Israel was, was, was likened to someone who was having an affair on their spouse, Uh, I'll give you one quick example from Jeremiah chapter 3. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You see that language? Now why would the Bible choose to use language like that? Adulterous kind of language to refer to our relationship with God. Y'all, when the Bible speaks about God's place in our lives, God's love for us, God's protection, provision, mercy, kindness, justice, righteousness, all the things that God is to us. The Bible will choose uh, at at different times uh, different images to reflect this, and and we know several of them very well. There's, of course, the image of father to child. God is a perfect heavenly father, and we come to him as his children. Or shepherd, the good shepherd to a flock, that we are his sheep, and that he's tender with us, and he loves us, and he guides us and directs us, right? But the Bible also refers to God often as a faithful husband to a bride, to a wife. In fact, in the New Testament, the church, we the church, we are called the bride of Christ, adorned in purity because we are married, united with Jesus. And so James's point, when we understand the, the level of intimacy we're meant to have with God, James's point, I think, becomes clearer. That when we live according to our sinful desires, we are cheating on God. We're we're having an affair against the one that we're meant to be in in covenant unity with. 
And James goes on to say that, that if we're friends with the world, we make ourselves hostile toward God. He, he shifts to a different image, friendship. Now, we might think friendship because we live in a Facebook kind of society where friendship is very casual. We might really miss what James is trying to communicate. Friendship in the ancient world was very intimate. There, was no, there, there were very few casual friends. Friends are people who walked through life together, who would do anything for each other, Wake me up at midnight if you need me kind of friends, those kind of intimacies. And so when James talks about friendship with the world, he's talking about connecting ourselves intimately with things that are not God, with things that are less than God, with things that are in defiance against God. And when we choose our sin over God, he says, you're becoming friends with the world. You're rejecting intimacy with your father, with your... uh, husband in this case, and you're running away into something else, something less, something idolatrous. Um, do we get the picture here? Uh, James is saying, if we, if we go back to the, the marital language here, it's like a cheating spouse who says over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you, but will not stop running around, just won't stop. That what we say with our mouths is not backed up in our behavior. And y'all, how does this affect God? You know, we, it's, I, I hope it's clear James has shown us already how it affects us, that it's breaking relationship. It's breaking relationship horizontally and vertically, both with each other and with God. But look at, God, look at the effect this has on the Lord in verse 5. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now that is an amazing statement that God is pictured to us as a jealous husband. Now, wait a minute. Isn't jealousy bad? Isn't jealousy a sin? Aren't we warned against being jealous in the Bible? We are, and it can be a sin. But there's a kind of jealousy that rightfully desires what belongs to you. There's a kind of jealousy that rightly desires what belongs to you. It's yours, and it's been taken. And when the Bible calls God jealous, it's making a clear statement about our relationship to him that you and I, we belong to God and he refuses to share us with anybody else. We belong to him and he will not share you. God refuses to have joint custody over you. And that's why God says emphatically time and again in the Bible, I will be your God and you will be my people. And think about that. It's logical if we understand the relationship we're meant to have with God. That God's not some sort of selfish, you know, childish being who just wants us all to himself just because. No, listen, if God has saved you by the grace of Jesus Christ, then he has, according to verse 5, he has made his very spirit to dwell in you. And so when you and I, when we start heading for the cheating side of town, God gets rightfully jealous. We have no business living in sin when God has so lovingly united himself to us. This is not a casual relationship that we have with the Lord. God's jealousy is a picture of his love. He loves you too much to share you with sin. And for that, we ought to be grateful. Now, we can't solve this problem. I'm a sinner, God is jealous. What what am I supposed to do about it? I can't solve that problem on my own. That's why verse 6 is so precious. Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Y'all exhale for just a minute here. 
because it's going to get hard again in a minute. Let's take our breaths while we can. He gives a greater grace, a grace greater than your sin, a grace greater, a grace that covers every infidelity, a grace that goes deeper than the deepest roots of all that we've done. His grace is greater. Where sin abounds, the scripture says, grace abounds all the more. Praise God. And how does he do it? Therefore it says, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. One of the most precious parables of Jesus comes to us from Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells a story about two men who go to church to pray. Two men go to pray. And they're very different from each other. One man is very religious, very buttoned up, put together, very highly esteemed, I'm sure, in his culture. Everybody thought he was good. But his prayer is entirely self-absorbed. He's, he just, his whole prayer congratulates himself on how good he's been, on all the things he does for God. And thank you, Lord, that I'm so good, and I'm especially better than those people over there, and even that guy over there, the other guy in the prayer. And then the second guy... Prays a very different prayer. He's a tax collector, Jesus says. He's a sinner and he knows it. And his sin has so humiliated him that he won't even lift his head up to heaven. But with his head, with his eyes on the floor, Jesus says, this man beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says it was that man, the second man, the sinful man, who went home justified rather than the other. One man went home saved, forgiven that day, and it was not the good one. It was not the self-congratulatory man. It was the sinner who knew he was a sinner and simply asked for mercy. And so this, this for us has is, is got to land deeply within our hearts that a humble person holds out empty hands and trusts that only God can fill these empty hands with grace, with what I need. I can't do it. Pride insists that I can, or at least I can manage it and get by. Only humility holds out empty hands and trusts God for his grace. And see, this is where James draws the line for us, that in our sinful desire, we are driven really by pride. It's not just sin in some sort of flat, two-dimensional way. It's driven by pride, a pride that says, I refuse, ultimately, I refuse to love, trust, honor, and obey God, and I'm going to live for myself instead. And that kind of pride will not pray a prayer like the tax collector in Luke 18. We just won't. Because we don't think we need God. I don't think I'm that bad. I don't trust that God is that good, and I can manage James says, you will go from bad to worse. The only hope for us is a pride purge to get rid of the pride in our lives. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, here's the application, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Y'all, submission to God means full-fledged coming up under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are no half measures with this. There's not halfway submission. This is not, if we think of, of our relationship with God like a marriage, and that's the, that's the image we've been given, and also, you know, marriage, what is marriage? What's a good marriage? It's 50-50. I give 50, she gives 50, right? Y'all, that's not what it means to submit to God. 
It's 100%. Not, I'll give God some and trust that he'll meet me in the middle. No, I trust him with everything. I submit to God as being supreme in my life. He's God, I'm not, and so I will give my entire being to him. That's what submission means. Easier said than done, I realize it, but that's why it has to be commanded of us. It's not natural. We've got to submit to him and declare that he is supreme. Now, what does that submission look like? James gives us an interesting application, doesn't he? He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, Resist the devil. Make an active, determined stand against temptation and sin. Y'all, so often I treat myself like the victim in sin. Well, golly, I, I don't know why I did it, and I surely couldn't help it. No, we're told to resist, to stand firm, the Bible says, to be on our guard. And in this case, to resist the devil, that means, y'all, that we make an active decision day by day, moment by moment. I'm going to stand against temptation, against the flaming darts of the enemy. I'm going to recognize the real warfare at stake here, and I'm going to do something about it. And the promise is this, he will flee from you. Isn't that a great promise? Resist the devil and he will run. Y'all, remember what we've already seen. God has made his Holy Spirit to dwell in you by faith. That means you belong to God. You do not belong to Satan. Satan has no claim on your life. Satan cannot invade your heart. God will send him running. But it requires that we refuse to, to, uh, to give him footholds, that we refuse to just let Satan have his way and shrug our shoulders. Submit to God and resist Satan. There's an active, ongoing reality at stake here. Now look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now that is such a simple little formula, one that you could memorize and our kids could memorize, and I'd encourage that even this week. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's an easy one. But y'all, there's something going on here. When when James tells us to draw near to God, uh, submit to God. We just saw that. Well, that sounds kind of formal, like a soldier submits to a commanding officer, right? Or a player submits to a coach. More formal, perhaps. Okay, fine. But not this, not verse 8. Draw near to God. That's not formal language. That's relationship. That's intimacy. That's child to parent. That's bride to groom. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Do we see ultimately what's happening here? That we don't, as Christians, listen, we're dealing with sin today, and it's difficult, but we never come to God as prisoner to warden or judge, even though God is a righteous judge. We don't come to him in a punitive fashion that God has always got his finger on a button, and the button's got your name on it, and you better not mess up. That we come to him in a way that we can draw near to him. In Hebrews, we're told that we have confidence to approach the throne of grace to help in whatever time of need we have. His throne is a throne of grace. We can draw near to him. But John, let me give you a little warning here, okay? Because we're about to jump into some, some more difficulty. When you draw near to God, it is a precious thing because you are drawing near to God, to God who is perfect in love and mercy and kindness and, and forgiveness and tenderness. When you draw near to God, you experience a comfort and mercy, the likes of which you'll never know elsewhere. Only you'll, you'll only find it in him. Draw near to him. But also when you draw near to God, we're also drawing near to God, who is perfect in holiness and righteousness and justice and purity and truth. Right? Uh, those are all things that we are not on our own. 
And so there is, to, to use uh, my, my good friend Paul Maffin's language, there's a sing and a sting when it comes to the truths of God. Draw near to God and he will sing over you. He is, he is your shepherd, your father, your groom. But he is also holy. And the closer you get to God, the more, the more the sting of our sin is felt and must be recognized because he's pure. And therefore, middle of verse 8, look what happens. Draw near to God and then cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I have never once walked into somebody's house and seen this verse on the mantle. I'm not sure that you have. I'm trying to think of where we'd put a verse like this in our house. Maybe above the bathroom sink. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's flu season. Um, y'all, this, 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 there's, there's, there's not a lot of comfort right here. Okay, But remember the context of this whole discussion, what James has been telling us from the beginning of this chapter, that your sinful desires are bringing ruin to your life. They're bringing ruin to your relationships. They're bringing ruin within the church, and they're ruining your relationship with God. You've been running around on God. And apparently in their pride, these Christians in the early church, they didn't feel a whole lot of conviction over their issues. James gives us the indication that maybe they were just laughing their sin off like it wasn't a big deal. So let your laughter be turned to tears, he says. Be miserable over your sin. Now again, James is reaching back into the Old Testament here that when, when Old Testament Israel, the people of God, when they were convicted of sin, and it happened fairly often, they had to be, um, when they were convicted of sin and they truly turned to God with repentant hearts, they wouldn't just say it out loud or feel it in their hearts. They would tear their clothes. They would put on sackcloth, the most uncomfortable clothing imaginable. They would sit down on a pile of ashes and they would weep out loud. They would fast from food. They would make a public declaration of the fact that they are sinners and they are in need of grace and they have no hope apart from God and his mercy. It was a radical thing. And that's essentially what James is calling us to. Now, I'm, they all, I, listen, I'm just like you. I read verses like this, and they feel incredibly abrasive to me. This is not the place I turn for encouragement. This is not, these, these are not scriptures that in my flesh I even enjoy at all. I don't like it. And there's a part of me that I just think, you know, is, isn't God just supposed to love me and affirm me all the time? Isn't Christianity supposed to be just flowers and candy? Aren't we just supposed to feel good about ourselves? Um, why would James tell us to be miserable and to mourn and weep? And y'all, here's the key, I think. Here's the key. That the, the more you come to know and love God, the more you ought to come to hate your sin. That those two things work together. The, as we have in our hearts an increasing love and affection for God, that we also experience an increasing hatred toward our sin. If God is precious to you, then your sin should be repulsive to you. That those two things are meant to work in concert with one another. The more I love God, the more I hate the sin that cost him his son. And y'all, listen, if, if God has made his Holy Spirit to dwell in me, his holy, pure, righteous spirit, then my sin ought to grieve me. 
It has to. It should be bitter to the taste. It should bring tears to my eyes. Your sin, my sin, it should grieve us because our sin grieves God. No one is more grieved, more hurt by our sin than God. No matter what destructiveness it brings in your life, it's nothing compared to the heart of God who is jealous over his bride who continues to run astray. And if my sin grieves God that way, then it ought to grieve me too. It's not something I can manage and laugh off. See, the bottom line for James is this. If, if we in our sin desire to exalt ourselves, if we in our pride, we want to have all the benefits of God, but I don't want to let go of my sin. I want all the good things God can give me, but I don't want to let go of the things I enjoy on the side. And it simply doesn't work. It doesn't work. God will not allow his grace to be abused. He is a rightfully jealous husband who will not share his bride with anyone else. No one makes a fool out of him. You can't have it both ways. And so how do we break this cycle? How do we, how do we get to the root of our sin that we can actually deal with the heart, root it out and be done with it? James sums it up in the last verse, verse 10. And we'll, we'll look at this as we close. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, this is the exact point Jesus was making in the parable I shared of the Pharisee and the tax collector. One was very proud and received nothing from God. He didn't know God at all. One was very sinful, but humble. And he received everything that Jesus came to give. He was justified. Y'all, humble yourself before God. That means that we... We sincerely acknowledge that we are sinful, we are empty, we are needy. There is nothing in me that makes me worthy of God. I need him entirely, 100%. I need him. My hands are empty. And when we come to God, recognizing, confessing, owning that reality, what happens? He will exalt you. What a promise. Here we are in our sin trying to exalt ourselves and all it's bringing is death and destruction and infidelity to God. But when we humble ourselves and express our need and our total trust and dependence on his grace, he lifts you up. This is what James meant when he said, God gives a greater grace. God gives a greater grace. A grace that is greater than any sin we bring to the table because he is God and I am not. None of my wrongdoing can hold a candle to the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for me, for you. And so when we do what James says, he gave us, uh, in terms of our relationship with God, he gave us three chief commands real quickly. Submit to God, draw near to God, humble yourself in the sight of God. The outcome of all three is always and forever the same. The outcome is always the same. He will exalt you. Not because you're worthy. In fact, quite the opposite. And that's what makes it grace. That's what makes it a gift. I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. I've run away. But when I acknowledge my need, he brings me in and he declares over me the preciousness of Jesus Christ in full, once and for all, forever. His grace abounds. Grace to cleanse, grace to purify, grace to forgive and also grace to transform. That we might be a people who enjoy God's mercy and live accordingly. Because he has loved me that much, I will be faithful to him 
And to the, to the degree that I love him, I will leave sin. Gladly I'll leave sin in the dust behind me. Would you pray with me? Father, it is uh, a... Um, I trust in this room right now a desperate need for us to encounter and confront verses like this. Um, we don't really want to. Uh, I don't like to look in this kind of mirror. I don't like to look into a mirror this clear and sharp. Um, I, I want to believe, Lord, that I've got things under control. I can manage just fine. So, Lord, if, if, if there are any men, women, and children in this room that share with me that, that, that sin, that, that self-deception, would you correct us right now and show us, Lord, the true depths of our need for you? We need you so much more desperately than we realize. We are, we are so much more sinful than we want to believe. And at the same time, you are so much more gracious than we dare to believe. So, Lord, would you let it sting and sing this morning? We've got to weep over our infidelity. We've got to call it what it is and, and sit in it and deal with it. But, Lord, all throughout, saturated even in our humiliation, right through every single um, sin, Lord. Your grace penetrates. Your grace overwhelms. Your grace purifies. So, Lord, make us the kind of people um, who don't walk around like the Pharisee in Luke 18, trying really hard to be good and sure proud of it. Make us, Lord, like the tax collector. We know we're sinners, and therefore our hands are empty. Be merciful to us. Father, we thank you this morning that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have absolute forgiveness, a new heart, eternal life and glory, sonship, every good and perfect gift, Lord, that you have come to give, you've granted it to us freely in Jesus. Lord, would you grant us the grace to receive it this morning? to trust that your mercies are new this morning and we've got to, with open hands, cry out to you for all that we need. And Father, would you, would you grant us the strength and the wisdom and the courage and the, the sobriety this week to live like it? If we have been so graciously treated, Lord, would we give our hearts entirely to you? Let it be so, we ask in Christ's wonderful and precious name. Amen. Amen.